Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Welcome back. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Marilyn Wedge. She's an award-winning family therapist and author of the books, Pills Are Not For Preschoolers, and most recently, A Disease Called Childhood. She also has numerous professional articles in the field of family therapy. Dr. Wedge had blogs on the Huffington Post and Psychology Today, and her work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, and she's consulted for People Magazine, Parenting Magazine, and Natural Health Magazine on issues of child development and how to parent happy, healthy children. Welcome, Marilyn. Oh, thank you, Roman. It's great to be here in beautiful Ojai. <laughs> it sure is, and today I'm joined by my wife, Tatiana. Hello. Hello, and welcome, Marilyn. Thank you, Tatiana. Great to be here. We're both really excited to have you here because you just have such a wealth of knowledge. You have a lot of experience, especially with children and families with ADHD. So we're excited. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So really what I wanted to start out with is saying that in the mainstream view is that there's one cause for uh, behaviors that we call ADHD, and that is that the child has a defective brain. And my main point that I'd like to get across is that there are many causes, and I'm going to give you uh, seven causes of psychosocial causes of these behaviors that um, I have found through my years of uh, therapy, doing family therapy and research in the field. So just... Um, should I start out with... Absolutely. Okay. We're, we're really curious. And, sure. And I know our listeners are too, so... All right. Well, the first one is uh, temperament, uh, as I think Thomas Hartman also uh, uh, talked about in his talk, in his podcast. Uh, some kids are just more energetic and uh, more lively and inspired than other kids. And um, you're, you're saying some of them are <laughs> unique or all of them are unique and everybody's different. Everybody's perhaps, different. You know? And so some, I mean, I have twins and they have two different identical twins and they have two different temperaments. Mm -hmm. So um, kids have different temperaments. So some kids, especially boys, are are energetic, high strung and and, and you know, nervous. I mean, that's just how they are when when they pop out. And so that is one of the things that could be uh, seen if they, you know, walk around, if they want to walk around the classroom instead of, instead of sitting still in the classroom. It might be thought uh, by the teacher as there's something wrong with the child. Maybe he needs to see a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. um, so, and often the temperamental is diagnosed as ADHD mm -hmm. when really it is just the child's um, active temperament. Um, the second cause, and, and this is the number one cause that I see in my practice. I have a practice in Westlake Village, not far from here. And the number one cause of what is, what is diagnosed as ADHD is parents arguing in front of the kids. Mm. Oh, and really? that is the number one cause. So in other words... Um the kids witness their parents argue and they develop uh, an anxiety or in restlessness or even sometimes, I guess, anger towards maybe one or, or both. Or and they feel conflict. They feel conflict because, um, you know, mm. their parents are both beloved and, and they, they, they feel conflict and confusion and it kind of shatters their consciousness in a way. And so what I tell parents, and, and, and many parents are willing to do this, is to, if you, everyone has arguments, couples you know, have, do have arguments. I've been married for 41 years and we've had arguments. <laughs> I mean, you, you uh, can't. You're human. <laughs> especially during these, this, these times of right now. Yeah. Um, I ask them to, uh, when the children are asleep, don't have the arguments in the house, get in your car, roll up the windows and argue mm. so that there is no chance that the child will hear you. 
because many a child I've heard, well, I heard at the door that my parents were arguing. They thought I was asleep, mm. but they're arguing. Um, I've had kids come in, and I say, so, so what's wrong, sweetheart? Um, and they say, my parents have been quarreling for so long. I mean, they just say it. They know what's wrong. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, not everybody listens to them. Mm. Um, now, is this similar, and I may be jumping ahead here, no, but it's fine. is this similar to uh, divorced families where, where the divorce itself yes. is one giant argument? Well, yeah. I mean, parents don't get divorced out of nowhere. They've been arguing for years before they get divorced. And yeah, I really have that here as, as part of that cause. Uh, divorce mm. is often a, a catalyst for the child to start being inattentive at school. Of course, uh, he can't focus at school because he's worried what, what's happening with my parents. Are they going to the of lawyer? Course. Where am I going to live? Whose house am I going to live in? Will I have my, my dog with me? Or where's the dog going to be? So kids are distracted by um, by divorce, and and they begin to have problems at school. They can't focus on their schoolwork. They daydream, and so suddenly they become ADHD inattentive type. But the real cause is the parents are having a divorce. And could we able would we be able to also broaden that to say it's distress within the child that is causing that, or? And that stress could have also come in any other ways? Or? Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the causes I'm going to talk about are stresses on, uh, on the child. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. the first one is different. That, that's kind of a different temperamental mm -hmm. thing. But um, this stress on the child, stress in the environment, mm -hmm. can lead to behaviors that the mainstream uh, doctors, psychiatrists, and, and, and schools call ADHD. And so perhaps, and I think that's what you were getting to, is like we in our own marriage, we had what I could, we, we don't argue, we're not the arguing type. I think we have maybe three times uh, in our marriage. We're getting better at it, we're more arguments. <laughs> Learning are, are to good. argue. Full self-expression, right? <laughs> but um, we, um, is it possible that children are perceptive such that if there is a, uh, I should say, a cold uh, war, a, a shaky ground mm -hmm, mm -hmm. leading towards mm -hmm. uh, divorce, which yes. we considered divorce twice and we were very mature about it, mm -hmm. but kids, I'm sure, can pick up on that. Oh, of course they can. Of course yeah. they can. They'll catch a word here and there. They'll catch the word divorce. They'll see that mm -hmm. their parents aren't hugging and kissing and showing affection. I remember there was a time when Kai would ask us, like, so you're not getting divorced, right? Like, a few times. And sometimes it'd be out of the blue, and we're like, whoa, what? It's interesting, because we also, when Kai was very young, I noticed he's not hugging me, or he wasn't a huggy, kissy type of son. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I remember we went back to our doula, and we were having a coaching session with her, and then she turned to Roman, and she said, well, let me ask you a direct question. Do you hug? your wife do you and that's mm -hmm. when it hit us we're like no we're not huggy we kissy were. we were yeah. very and we for whatever reason because of our both, both of our, our upbringings that's how we led our relationship in a very cold way and we just never made that association that our son was picking up on that and, and i think I, I don't ever remember as a kid seeing my mo my mom and dad hug mm -hmm. you know they weren't mm -hmm. very because again my dad was either bisexual or gay we're not 100 percent sure but there was something where it just didn't come through that there was intimacy, physical, and you know. So I grew up like women. You just have quick relationships and have sex and get your needs met, and then you just talk about business or a family or logistics, and that's right. that's marriage, right? Right. So just to insert that, I think we have we experienced ourselves that suddenly our kids were feeling something wasn't really safe or. Mm. There wasn't any certainty in the marriage that would protect them or something like that. Right? Well, kids are hypersensitive to their yeah. parents' relationship. It's survival, you yeah. know, because their parents are their way of surviving. Yeah. And so they have an instinct for what's, is something wrong here? Is there something that needs, needs to be repaired? And I, I know this sounds odd, but sometimes a kid will act out to bring the parents to therapy. Yeah. And I know that's an odd way of looking at it, Mm -hmm. But as a family therapist, I've looked at it that way for years. Wow. Um, 
very often teenagers, you'll find that they're bringing their parents to therapy and they know it. And, they, and I let them know that I know it. And then we're all set. I love this. Then they're my co-therapist. So, so in a way they're acting up so much so it can just push everyone to like, we all need to we need these help. issues. We need we, help. Yeah. They'll yeah. go to the school counselor and the school counselor will bring the parents in very often and they, they want to get their parents' help. Yeah. I love that. It's almost like, remember we have that in our, in our pitch deck. It says uh, children with ADHD are trying to tell us something. Yes, indeed. And they're, we're not listening. Uh, th- indeed. They're trying to tell us many, there are many stories underneath the behaviors that we're sort of sticking in one basket and calling ADHD. Yeah. So what we need to do is find out, are the parents arguing? Is the marriage in trouble? And is the kid trying to save the marriage by bringing them to, wow. to help? Wow. You know, and, and I, I want to make sure we don't digress from your list. Uh, one last thing I will say is that I've noticed, um, I've joined many online ADHD online support groups, and about close to 80% of the, the members of the groups are female, are women, and close to almost the same 80% of them are single parents or divorced parents. Uh-huh. And so... Without making a, a you know, a, a value, judgment. Ju- value yeah. judgment, there is something there about about fathers not being available. About divorces have happened, and now it's up to the mothers, the single mothers or right divorced mothers, to raise their children, and they don't have the capacity. They're still dealing with the ex, right? There's still anger and resentment, right? And stuff. Yeah. And now they they got three jobs, some of them, from what I'm picking up. And how are they supposed to actually do family therapy? You know. Yeah, well, it is hard, Uh, but usually in a case of divorce, if I can get both parents in or ex the exes, but in separately, not they don't have to be in the room together. But if I can get them to be on the same page, Mm -hmm. so that they have the same rules in both house, and I remember one little boy, I think he was about eight, and um, and one one house, his mother's house was more strict, and his father's house, he it was he much more lenient and do what you want. And he said, "No, I don't want the same rules in both houses." <laughs> <laughs> but but I did get the father. He lived in another state, and I talked to him, and I sent him some some articles, and he got on board, and he toughened up, and so then they got the same rules in both houses, and they didn't argue about you know, who was the better parent or who, how, how the discipline should be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I just want to ask you, um, there seems to be a taboo in our society, obviously, for many things, but especially when we're talking about a divorce or a marriage that's not working or some abuse or arguing, people aren't, parents aren't usually quick to jump and say, oh, yeah, we have some problems over here. We'll come in and talk about it, right? How do you... Uh, you must be an amazing wordsmith when you actually present this idea of all of us in the same room. How does that happen? Oh, How do you make that happen? Right. Well, I say that I need both parents' perspective on the history of what's happened with the child. So when was the child diagnosed and when did he start having problems at school? Was he uh, you know, an active kid from the age of two? Um, so I just kind of frame it as I need both of your parents mm. to give me perspectives on the child. And then to keep the parents there to do the work is I keep the focus on the child. I never focus on the marriage. That yeah. comes out. It, it always it's like peeling the onion, the layers of the onion. Yeah. First, the first layer is the child. Let's get the child's behavior under control, and then the marital issues start coming out. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so they start realizing, oh well, yeah, I have been traveling so much, and I get back, and you know, I've been across seven time zones, and I come back, and I'm irritable, and my wife doesn't understand this, and she's only worried about her job, mm. and. Um, and so it happens organically and also just with a very gentle, non-judgmental way of thinking about these things, that life is tough for parents so it's really, these days. It's, it's really almost, it's easier for parents, unfortunately, to say our child needs therapy than asking for marriage therapy. Exactly. Yeah. It's easier. And, um, and then, as I say, the child brings the parents in, and <laughs> then the child goes and plays with my toys. I have lots of toys from when I used to be a play therapist. And, um, and then I get the parents to start talking about it. 
And sometimes there's in-law problems that one of the in-laws is interfering too much in the marriage or the mother is too bonded with her family. So this all comes out. And then they fight. And you know what? I've had so many parents say, I knew it was us. I knew it was something we were doing. Oh, wow. They really have said that. Sometimes they say it before they bring the child in. That's very hopeful to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Well, it, it would be more hopeful if it happened on a larger scale. Yeah. But, um, you know, I feel bad for uh, ch- parents whose kids who, who are on Medicaid and whose children are on Medicaid, which does not pay for family therapy. It only provides coverage for psychiatry and um, psychiatric medication. Wow. And, and that's one of the inequalities here, whereas a yeah. more well-to-do family can can be, come as a family and have uh, five or six sessions of family therapy and solve the problem. It would be more cost-effective than psychiatry and medication. Mm-hmm. And that's what they don't understand sure. it because um, the mainstream approach is psychiatry and medication right, right. in our society. Yep. And Marilyn, in, in your practice, when parents have actually come to the real, realization that it may be them who is affecting this right. impacting the child, to what level of life shift or life change have parents gone into making within their lives? Yeah, well, they'll, they'll How have, far have they gone from Sure, they, I mean, they'll have lunch together and, and air out the issues. Or they'll, um, if they have someone to care for the child in the evening after dinner, they'll take a walk and air out those issues and say, yeah, you know, I, I have been bugged for a long time by you doing this. Um, so I find most parents, I'm not saying 100%, but in the 90s percent, uh, parents will start to deal with their own issues, their marital issues, and uh, in ways that I suggest, um, which is by phone, when uh, they're away from the kids, or uh, having lunch together sometimes, or just taking a walk in the evening, or, or getting in the car and closing the windows. It's tough, because they don't always realize that the kid can hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, parents have gone to extraordinary lengths. And, and do you, how, how long do you usually uh, see, as, on average, uh, uh, someone, a family doing therapy until the quote-unquote ADHD symptoms uh, uh, calm down or disappear? Any, anything from two sessions to seven sessions. Wow. That's actually why I became a family therapist. Um, I started out as a child therapist doing Jungian child play therapy, sand tray therapy, and I noticed that I really wasn't getting much results. I mean, I'd get like 14 sessions, and I'd get very little results, and most results came from talking to the parents in the waiting room, so I used to call it waiting room therapy. <laughs> but then I heard a... Um, a talk by the great family therapist, Jay Haley. And, and I asked him, well, how many sessions um, does it take to cure the kid of, you know, obstre- uh, 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 oppositional or defiant or uh, hyperactive behaviors? And he said, seven sessions. I said, That's, this is for me. I want to be effective in seven sessions. And mm-hmm. so it took years of training and supervision uh, by Jay Haley to uh, actually start seeing the world in a different way. Wow. You don't see the, it really is a shift in your consciousness. You, you don't see the child as an individual. You see the system. What's happening in the system that is yeah. making the, and the child is the canary in the coal mine, the, the one that says there's trouble here. Right. And there's, there's now, there's, we have epigenetics, right? That we talked about this earlier that proves right. that the environment clearly influences how the genes express themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I don't want to get into genes here, but, so just going back to that, so I think it's mind, it's, it is mind-blowing to me that I would, my guess would be that 80% of parents today do not consider that it could be a family issue, but that it's the child is the problem. There's a disorder. And of course, to their credit, they've been sold a narrative. Right, the, the narrative child, of yeah. a brain defect. The, yeah. the narr- if your pediatrician says your child has a disease called ADHD, there's something wrong with his brain, and parents are very swayed by that. They'll do anything to help their child. They will go to the child's psychiatrist. They will take the medication. Yeah. Uh, of course, parents are well-intentioned, but it ha- has immense power coming from a pediatrician yeah. that your child has ADHD. Or as I was saying earlier, 
I've had child's come in, children come in and the parents have taken them to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles or UCLA Medical Center. They come back with a diagnosis of autism. Wow. And that's a powerful thing for a parent. And seven sessions, the child is better. The wow. child is not autistic wow. anymore. Yeah. And I know it's hard to believe, and I had a hard time believing it myself when I was a young therapist and uh, learning from Jay Haley and some of the greats, Sal Mnuchin, the great pioneers of family therapy. Um, but now I don't see the world in any other way. I can't see it in any other way. Yeah. Wow. Thank, it was God. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God, right. But it was tough at first. I'm not saying it's easy. Yeah. You've been um, at this for a while, but let's get back to your list. So you were talking about behaviors, right, or uh, right. causes. Sure, of causes of the, the multiple causes that result in behaviors that, that may be diagnosed as ADHD. So this is a big one. It's inconsistent discipline. So when parents say something, you're grounded for a month, and then the child says, well, my best friend's birthday party is on Saturday. Could I just go? And the, and the parent says, oh, yeah, we can't keep you from your best friend's birthday party. Of course you can go. Well, what does the child learn? That they can misbehave, and the, the parent will say something, and then they won't stick to it. So they're going to keep misbehaving. Um, or you know, acting out for attention or whatever. Um, so consistent discipline so that the child knows the, knows the rules of the house, and in, in the case of divorce, that the child knows the rules of both houses, and that the parents are consistent about following through. So you don't threaten anything you can't enforce. Um, so it's not like no TV for a week. It's you can't watch your favorite show tonight if you, don't, if you give me trouble getting ready for school or if, if you don't uh, turn on the uh, camera in online school these days. Yeah. Um, so consistent discipline and one book I, I really recommend uh, to most parents on this is called one two three magic mm. uh, it's written by thomas phelan i've recommended it to many people um it's it's count of three one is a warning two is a, a second warning uh, three time out loss of loss of privilege uh, loss of your ipad for tonight mm -hmm. um so just very consistent which means both parents have to back up Oh, I guess Hi. we're talking about boys, and there's our son, Kai, who's coming yeah. in, who with, needs with some Kai. help logging in. Um, is this the online school uh, iPad? Yeah, yeah, that is online cool. school. And uh, we were just talking about discipline, Kai. One, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> kind you, of. you lose an account of three. You lose a privilege, yeah. right? Um, I really respect you, Tashiana, for, for doing this school yourself or homeschooling. I know it takes a lot of energy. Thank you. Yes, we're discovering. Thank you so much. A lot of devotion. Yeah. yeah. I have a whole new respect for mothers who have been homeschooling for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, a that's great. Um, so inconsistent discipline. And, and this is really where I, I counsel parents. And then, you know, they come back and they said, I read the book. I did it. And it works. And it's wow. like magic. It really is wow. like magic. So that, that, that could be a three session and a virtual session. Mm -hmm. These days I'm doing Zoom sessions mm -hmm. uh, or FaceTime sessions. And I read the book. It works. It's getting better. It's much better. Now we have something else to work on. My husband and I don't agree on some this or that, and, and then we move on to that. But So is that a lot of that would show up as what they consider oppositional defiant yes, disorder, right? Uh, right. Oppositional or ADHD. Or ADHD. It can be diagnosed as usually ADHD. Usually it's a combination usually. Right. Yeah. In fact, I had a father say, so do you think he has oppositional defiant disorder? And I said, uh, no, it's not a disorder. It's just behaviors. And we can, we can cure the behaviors. If you make it a disorder, it sounds like you know, it's really something you need medicine for. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But the behaviors we can resolve. And, and you know what I uh, dislike, one of the statements I hear again and again, again, this, these are parents that what I call have been misinformed or given a, a one-sided narrative, which is, oh, you can't really outgrow it. And this is the most ridiculous argument because that just keeps someone on medication and disordered, right, for right, life. Right. When in fact, you are proof that someone in, in as little as seven sessions can actually, I don't want to say outgrow, but reduce the symptoms. And right. then eventually when they turn 21, 25, they may not even have any symptoms. Exactly, exactly. And actually, that's the European, the European take on this is that kids are 
uh, hyperactive, and th th but they outgrow it. I mean, yeah. before the DSM three came around with their diagnoses, um, it, it used to be thought it, in Europe especially, but in this country too, that the kid will outgrow it. Yeah. Um, in, when I went to school um, in the fifties and sixties. There was one boy on Ritalin. I mean, you just heard there was one kid in the entire school. Wow. I mean, the rest of the kids, I mean, they have something, may have something to do with society. Society was more stable then. It wasn't so stressful for parents, both two working parents. Um, but, but the others, you know, so there were, there were active boys that needed to be sent to the principal's office. Hey, I had to stand in the corridor myself once in a while for talking with the neighbor kid when I was bored. But I wasn't diagnosed. I, today I would be diagnosed. Mm. But um, so it was thought you, you outgrow those behaviors. You know, by the time you get to, to high school, you realize you don't talk to other people in class. You don't, you know, jump out of your seat. You don't dip, dip my hair in the inkwell, which the boy <laughs> behind me oh, used really? to do. Oh, God. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> but, you know, that wasn't seen as a disease. Right. It was seen as right. boyish behavior that they're going to outgrow. And you, you wrote a book called A Disease Called Childhood, yes. which, by the way, I love that, that title. Um, how did that come about? How did you end up with that title? Well, it's exactly what we we're just talking about, that this is some of these behaviors that are called ADHD are normal childhood behaviors, like dipping um, my braids in the inkwell. <laughs> you know, it wasn't great, but it wasn't a disease. Yeah. It was just a boy being prankish. So um, many of, of the things, and I think one of the, th the problems is that schools have, have changed since I went to school. Classrooms are larger. Teachers are under more pressure to teach to standardized tests. I never took a standardized test till I went to college. Yeah. And so there's a lot of pressure. So there's pressure on the teachers to have everyone behave like a seven-year-old girl. Yeah, and they want everyone in the classroom to behave like a seven-year-old girl, no matter what their temperament, whether they're a boy or whatever. And if they don't behave like a seven-year-old girl who's a people pleaser and sedate, um, then then they're diagnosable, and mm. we're going to medicate them until they become like seven-year-old girls. That's fascinating I, to me wait, that you're equating it to a girl because we we in a way they I mean they are, but just consciously we're not equating it to that. We want all these boys to be proper, quiet, focused, right. attention, right. submissive. Not right. submissive, well, but like docile. And I heard that uh, something like 75% of teachers That's to impossible. this day still are women, right? So right. It's, it's easier for a woman to be in a classroom to want the, the children to behave like girls, like themselves, because they, they know that, they can relate to that. And it is easier to manage. They're docile. Yeah. And I've had, honestly, this is, honestly, I have... A, a few teachers I've had in my practice over the years, uh, teaching second grade, third grade, fourth grade, and, they, and they'd come and say, oh, I have uh, mostly girls in my classroom this year. Or, as in, oh, like, as my, in like, yes, my celebration. Class, yes, and uh, <laughs> oh, but I have, I have a, a lot of boys in my classroom. And yeah. then I think I mentioned there was one um, parent that came in recently and said that of the 12 boys in the class, her son's classroom, 10 were referred for diagnosis and were taking medication. Wow. wow. And she, 10 out of, out of 12, 12 boys. Wow. That's crazy. And um, she didn't want her son to be on medication, so she came to me, and there were marital problems to be worked out. That's actually a great point, because you know when they have the statistics of uh, one uh, out of 12 school-age children? But that's boys and girls. If you break that down to just boys, it's a much higher rate. Yeah, boys are diagnosed much four yeah. times as many. Now, I have a question. It's been a burning question uh, since I started this project. So if we're saying, in a sense, and we all agree that trauma traumatic stress or the family not working well at home, right, uh, is a cause for uh, children to get, get uh, diagnosed or labeled with ADHD, but it's more boys than girls. So is it that girls are more, they're taking the same stress and trauma more internal and they later will develop more of like depression, anxiety, other dis quote unquote disorders? Or um, It's possible, but a lot of girls, um, they're uh, diagnosed with inattentive ADHD, right. inattentive type, and they don't necessarily need medication. 
So, so it's because um, they're not hyperactive. They they're don't not, disturb. Right. They're not impulsive. But they're still they're dealing just with. They're distracted. And they're dealing, they're distracted because they're, you know, they're worried that their parents are going to get divorced right. because their father doesn't like their grandmother. So, so in other words, technically girls could have a similar rate of ADHD, but they're not, because they're not physically agitating the classroom, right. they're exactly. not diagnosed. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's true. And, and it's true. They come in with other other kinds of diagnoses. Mm. Um, and I guess that's why later in life we see a lot of women struggle with other uh, disorders because somehow they have to be processed, right? The divorces right. and the trauma and all that. Yeah, they, they, have, they develop eating disorders in right, high school, right. bulimia, anorexia, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Got it. Okay, yeah, I was just curious. But anyway, so um, uh, the last one was uh, the discipline, right? That was right? Uh, inconsistent discipline. Yeah, so that's a good if, one. If both parents us. are on the same page and, and you have these conversations away from the child, what's fair what what is a fair consequence for what behavior mm. and I usually ask parents to focus on one behavior the the one behavior they want to change and we change that first so often it's getting dressed in the morning for school or <laughs> getting getting right. dressed and breakfasted in the car how about just getting out of bed yeah that's another one <laughs> One, two, three, right, out. Right, but well, we're going to make you a star chart, or that, a star chart, and then uh, for every day that you do uh, get out of bed at the right time, then you get a gold star, and if you get three gold stars out of five school days, then on the weekend you get to go with daddy for frozen yogurt. Ice cream, yeah, yeah. Or, or ice cream, <laughs> or pizza. Yep. You, you get a prize. Uh, actually, it can be even more um, instant gratification than that. I had one, one uh, strategy which a parent recently did. I tell parents, go to the dollar store and get a bunch of little toys, wrap them like gifts, and put them in a big grab bag, mm. you know, a big bag. Yeah, yeah. And if you get, every time you get a gold star, you get a toy. Uh-huh. And then if you get four out of five, then you get to go for a special outing. You get to have a friend mm. over for pizza right. or a, uh, go for ice cream or something like that. I like that. And it, it really works. So that's yeah. kind of the rewarding positive behavior as well as having consistent yeah. consequences for negative behavior. I, I think we've tried some of these, but inconsistently. Right. So therefore they don't work. See, a lot of parents say that. Well, we yeah. tried a star chart. And I said, well, did you do it consistently? Right. Mm, no. no, we did it for a week or two and it worked pretty well, so we stopped. <laughs> yep, exactly. So, so it takes devotion. And, but I, I had a parent recently say that they had tried the count of three and the star chart, and it, it worked perfectly. Wow. It really changed wow. their family life. That's Amazing. great. Yeah, that one it. we'll definitely look into. We, we could use some of that. Yeah. Well, I know it's tough. And part of, part of the point of consistent discipline, it cuts out the yelling. Because yelling at a child really is um, very painful for yeah. the child. And yeah. it, just, it makes the child feel just terrible and angry and upset. So if you, ha- if you have inconsistent discipline, then there's more likely to be yelling. Yeah. Whereas if you are consistent, the child knows the rules and that's what's going to happen. That's great. Yeah, there's definitely some, uh, our dog Max, I think he wants to go visit the kids maybe. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, you know, as first time parents with our oldest uh, son, Kai, uh, I remember there was a couple times when I, I can be very honest about that. There was probably two or three times where I got really upset and yelled and slammed my hand on the, on the table and I remember that he was just shocked, right? And there was one time, I think I did it once or twice, where I slapped him, but not a full-on slap, because right. I'm aware I'm a big guy. And, but it was just one of these, like, child, just mm-hmm. stop it, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember after taking parenting classes that I was like, oh, I'll never do that again. And I was yeah. clear yeah. that it was, A, not effective, B, it's traumatizing, yes. the slapping and the yelling, and ever since we transformed that, I mean, it's it's changed. I can tell slowly right. it's changed the behavior. Yeah. But I remember I didn't know any better. You know, sure. as a parent, you're like, this must stop now. Right. And you don't have any, you feel like you have no authority and the child must be quiet now. And so, I, you know, I, I know lots of parents or most parents can relate to, but it doesn't work in the no, long run. No, spanking, slapping doesn't work. Nope. And spanking, it's come up lately. Um, I guess with everyone cooped up, it's come up more lately that parents tell me, well, we tried spanking and it doesn't work. And I said, well, you know, that, that never does work. It, it just traumatizes the child more and makes him more angry yeah. and he'll act out more. 
if he's spanked. So no spanking, yeah. uh, no spare the rod and spoil the child. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. All right. So, so next, the next um, possible cause, and, and I think you touched on this in one of your other podcasts, is food allergies and food sensitivities. Mm-hmm. So this, um, I talk about this in a disease called childhood. The great uh, pediatric allergist uh, Benjamin Feingold. Uh, noticed that when uh, children were were not given um, artificial food colorings and artificial uh, food uh, preservatives, that their hyperactivity stopped. And he was really um, ostracized by the pediatric establishment and the food industry. Of course. So he inspired a, a huge study in, in England called the Southampton Study, and it was a very large longitudinal study, a placebo-controlled, double-blind uh, crossover study of uh, whether testing whether f- uh, food dyes, artificial food colorings, would uh, produce hyperactivity in children. And the study found that it definitively would. I mean, the, the wow. findings were clear. And so what happened was, so... so um, and this is just the hyperactivity part. The hyperactivity. This is just the hyperactivity part. So the European Food Standards Agency talked to the food companies and said, you have to label your foods. If they have artificial food colorings, you have to label. may cause hyperactivity in children. Well, the food companies, the big, the big ones, Nestle, uh, Kraft, they, they are Mars, producer of M&Ms, mm-hmm. um, they didn't want to label it. So they said, we're not going to use artificial colorings anymore. We're going to use beets for red coloring, saffron for orange. And so in Europe, if you buy M&Ms, they're only um, natural foods used for the coloring, but not in the United States. The food industry here didn't do that. They uh, attacked the Southampton study. Uh, There were congressional hearings on it. But they, the food industry was very powerful. So, but but uh, so so at that time they did not uh, ban uh, the artificial colorings. However, uh, in recent decades they have. They've stopped using the red dyes mm-hmm. in foods, and, and there's a yellow dye that also. Yeah. So they have on their own initiative because parents were becoming aware. Right. They were becoming right. aware that it makes kids hyperactive. Yeah. So. And they could the kid, children would be labeled ADHD, uh, hi, hyperactivity disorder. Right, right. Um, so that is one possibility. So if none of the family thing seems to fit, then I go to diet, sugar, and artificial food colorings and um, and preservatives. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, and and it's really tragic because Feingold was ostracized. Nobody would publish him, and he really did a great. Uh, beneficial service to children and well, parents. It happens a lot, as, as you uh, obviously know very well, that somebody comes out with a non-conventional or anti-against-the-mainstream right. exactly. belief exactly. that there's going to be ostr- uh, ostr- what is it? ostracism. Ostracism, right. thank you. Uh, and that's unfortunate, and uh, it always makes me sad that there's such great studies. We recently um, discovered uh, Nadine Lambert's study about uh, Ritalin, on Ritalin, that mm-hmm. it actually, uh, you know, parents are always told your your son or daughter will self-medicate if they're not medicated for ADHD, and she actually kind of proved the opposite. Right. That exactly. if they are medicated, it's more of a gateway to medicate later, and that study never got published. Well, she was hit by a garbage truck yeah. coming out of her office in Berkeley, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, That's so, astounding to me that a 30-year... So a thirty-year study, study that never saw the light of day. Gone. Exactly. And she was attacked at the, I think it was the National Institute of Health con- uh, uh, conference where she presented the findings. Same thing, ostracized. Yeah, same know. as Feingold. It's yeah. a shame. It's a shame. Yeah, that really is. Anyway. So anyway, more research here. Um, there is a lot of research now coming out. When I wrote my book, there were only a few studies that your birthday month can affect your being diagnosed really? with ADHD. Yeah. Uh, related it, to school. If you have a summer birthday and you're put into kindergarten uh, early and you're among the youngest in the classroom, uh, well, uh, a child who's just turned five in, in, say, August before school starts 
and a child who was born in January, that's half a year difference. In the life of a child, that's a huge proportion. That makes yeah. total sense. And so, the old, so being among the youngest in the classroom is a uh, risk factor for being diagnosed with ADHD. That's amazing. I had a, I had a hunch when we uh, when our boys were at a, a school where it was multi age, right? Nobody got got pointed, you know, to or, or diagnosed because right. there were different ages and right. it just wasn't the standardized, you know. The uh, teacher limitation. accepted the different levels yeah. of maturity. Yeah. Right. Whereas in a you know a, a, a mainstream classroom, uh, the you know, you so, have to have one standard of maturity. If yep. one kid is acting more immature than others, he stands out. He's sent to the <laughs> principal's office. Pretty soon there's a referral for evaluation for ADHD. Yeah. So this yeah. is really important that you don't want to rush kids into kindergarten, especially boys. Um, you want to, there's an advantage. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about this called Outliers. That he yep. found that some of these great performers, like Bill Gates, they were the, among the oldest in their classroom. Yeah, and uh, so they had an edge. So being among the oldest in your classroom gives you an edge. Max, uh, Max just came to say hi, he loves Max. you. <laughs> Our dog Max is back. Dog. Hi, Max. Um, it's interesting because uh, you know parents are rushing their kids into schools and they're signing up for preschools before the child is born because they want to get on the Ivy League track. Right, it's, right. To get there, what, if you could get there a couple years later, it's not the end of the world. It really no, isn't. I wish most parents felt that way. It's like, come on. Really. Uh, kindergarten is for socializing and not for yeah. like learning to read and, and do algebra. Um, right. Really. So, so giving your child the gift of holding them, putting them in, say, junior kindergarten, pre-kindergarten, and so they can socialize but not be rushed into the academic work um, that is definitely a factor, and, and there's a lot of research on this now. And what do you feel like is that, um, th that what I call trickle-down, I call it the, the carrot on a stick, you know, the get, it, get in, in an Ivy League school and be successful, and that thing that's pulling our, uh, parents so much to get their kids in there, get them standardized and tested and academically perform and all that, how, are we, how, can, that, how can that change? What can we do? <laughs> well, it's a big question. It's I know. a big question. We have a have and a have not society, and if you're not in the have, you know the ones that get into the good colleges, that get the good graduate schools, that become doctors and lawyers and professionals, then your kid might end up in the have nots, and um, it's getting more competitive. So I, I think it's really crazy because I, I see uh, a lot of teenagers who are under incredible pressure from their parents to, to go to um, an Ivy school, and they just have breakdowns. I, I saw one yeah. recently. Um, I mean, she just fell apart because, because she couldn't stand the pressure. What does it matter? I mean, really, what does it matter? Um, your child will needs to express their best talents and abilities, and there are all kinds of colleges and tr tr trade schools and art schools that will help them express themselves at what they're good at. Right. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they might not be good at you know, fitting into an Ivy League school. I never rushed my kids to go to Ivy League schools. I, I didn't. That's great. They, they just did what they did, and one is a doctor, and one is a lawyer, and one is a um, founder of a microcredit for women in Africa. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> and we never, you know, we were totally surprised at all of their choices, but you just kind of sit back and let them do their mm. thing. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. And I, I think, you know, the fear of your child not, quote unquote, turning out, I think is what parents are worried about, that they're going to end up homeless or a drug user or single and no job. You know, I get it. It's, it's, it's a valid concern. We had two when we went to this child-led school. They're like, they're not learning anything. They're just reading. They're just uh, sitting under a tree and playing with mud. Like, are they going to learn anything? And they totally learn because they, they want to learn. Yes. But when they're not pressured, they will learn. Right. And when they're pressured, they might also learn if they're on medication, if they're forced to do it. But eventually, as adults, they're going to be frustrated, uh, disappointed, insecure, unhappy. Who knows, right? And they rebel. They rebel. They rebel when they're teenagers, yeah. too. Yeah. They, 
they rebel against their parents. And it really takes, as it was in our case, like deprogramming. We have to deprogram ourselves mm-hmm. from the traditional route right. that we've all been raised under, that this is the one way to succeed, or this is the right. one way to achieve, and, and that is not true. That's not true. Uh, no, because you can't force a child to do what, what's not in them to do. You, but if you uh, allow them to, to blossom in the abilities that they do, every child has abilities and talents, and you just have to watch those blossom and grow. And of course, you know, some direction, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, telling them, you know, there's these kinds of jobs and these kinds of jobs, and what do you think you'd like to do? You know, that, that doesn't hurt. Absolutely. But yeah. not saying... Uh, uh, you have to be a doctor and this is the path that you have to go on. Right, uh, right. And I think that's a lot of it is cultural, right? A lot of cultures, they, they look at, you know, doctors and lawyers and the typical sort of like, that's when you're successful. Right. Don't become an artist. Don't become a, a woodworker or a forest service. You know, it's like those are not, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Uh, you can't make a lot of money that way. Right. You can't get a lot of credibility that right. way. But if a child is happy and it's the passion, they will right. be fulfilled as a human being. And that, to me, is worth more than money. Yeah, we yeah. want our children to be happy. Yeah. That, that's, I think, that's all parents. The... We want our children to be happy. But to be happy, you have to have some you know, reasonable income. It doesn't have to yes. be a CEO's income or a doctor's income. But you have to have a reasonable level. So you teach them you do have to have... You can be an artist, but you may have to have a day job. Um, right. Yeah, but not to make them feel lesser or ashamed or not as good as the next one who's going to Harvard. Uh, right, right. Um, everyone has a unique ability. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so I know we keep digressing. We have from one the, more. Yeah, I have yeah, just no, please. One more They're all so, so great that they all open up well, a, a whole slew of topics. You yeah. Know, so that's great. Well, th- this one is a little hard to talk about. It's, it's the... Um, but in, in some ways, it's the most important. So uh, number seven on my causes of behaviors that might well in our society be diagnosed as ADHD is um, abuse, physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. Mm. And the, the, the real shocking thing is that, uh, according to experts like Bessel van der Volk, uh, about one million American children each year um, are victims of child sexual abuse. Wow. And one, one million. One million. 800,000 to one million. A year. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. According, I mean, to, does, according even... to doctors who deal with this exclusively, like wow. Bruce Perry and Bessel, uh, Bessel van der Kolk. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't even land for me. One million is, yeah. that's a huge number. I, I know. It's, it's so hard it's, to let it's, that in. It's very difficult to believe. But, mm. um, and I, as we were talking about before, I experienced this myself. Um, and, uh, some twenty some years ago, in a different state, I was a young therapist working at a, a, a low fee mental health clinic, and I had um, a little boy who uh, told me that he was being forced to perform sexual acts on his father, and uh, this child was being brought to the clinic and uh, to be medicated because he was acting out in preschool. Well, a child, I mean, that's enormous stress and enormous trauma. And so, of course, you're going to act angry and upset in preschool. Um, but he was diagnosed with ADHD uh, and medicated. But the medication wasn't helping because the abuse was continuing to go on. And then I talked with other therapists at this uh, clinic, and, and they all had clients like this. And I, it's very difficult uh, to face. I mean, in, in maybe where we live, it's not happening as much uh, in, in this uh, rarefied atmosphere of Ohio, Westlake, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. but it does still happen. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's not the parents. Sometimes it's a nanny or uh, a godfather of the child or an uncle mm-hmm. or even a best friend of the parents. Um, and so I, I think... Abuse really um, is underestimated as uh, a cause of what we call ADHD because the medication kind of subdues the child, stops the behaviors, and, um, and so the problem is, quote, solved, and the child's story never comes to light. Wow. Yeah. And this has been going on for a long time. Um, as I mentioned before, my mentor, the great family therapist Jay Haley, once said that 
there never has been an incest taboo. There's only been a taboo about talking about it. Mm. And that, that really hits home. And, you know, Freud, a uh, hundred years ago, Freud discovered this, that men, many of his patients who were diagnosed as hysterical or um, uh, schizophrenic, uh, when he, he didn't work with schizophrenics, but he worked with a lot of hysteria, and he found that they had been uh, sexually molested as children. Mm. But the, his uh, fellow neurologist didn't want to believe him and, and sort of made him shut up about it. So then he uh, transformed the theory into a fantasy of abuse. So the Oedipal complex, it's a fantasy of sleeping with the mother, or the electric complex of fantasy of wanting to sleep with the father. Um, so he kind of transformed it. Yeah. But the, 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 nugget, the nugget of gold that he found was that many, many children are helpless victims of sexual and physical abuse. You know, it's interesting that, that you said that when you were telling that story, I remembered on one of the online support groups, I saw a video and it really disturbed me because what at first seemed like an oppositional, like an ODD moment, right. it was a mother, she had filmed herself or the car driving this young child who was screaming and kicking in the car. And you know, she's talking about like, I can't focus on driving, we're going to crash, please shut up. And she was like, you know, so... I could have easily shut that video off at that moment and gone like, well, this, this, this kid is a little intense in the car. I get it. It's unsafe, right. right? But thank God I finished the video. It was about another 20 seconds. And it turns out that the kid said towards the end, I don't want to go to Uncle Bobby's house. Oh. And mom said, well, I have to go to work and I got to drop you off. And you know that's what we do. And, go, and he goes like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Mm. And it just hit me. Of course, because there's probably something. It doesn't have to be sexual abuse. It could right. be physical yelling. It or could be whatever, spanking. right? Spanking or right. or just a bad place to be. Right. And so that gets nowadays totally disregarded as, oh, the kid has ODD. Right. But he's a six, seven-year-old kid who's right. just reacting to something. Not listening to the child's story. That That's the real tragedy yeah. of the diagnosing and drugging of children. Mm. It's not listening to the child's story, whatever that story is, mm. whether it's, um, you know, the nanny is touching my privates or um, I feel sad because I think you're going to get a divorce or um, mm. that story never gets told be mm. uh, because the child shows these behaviors which a group of psychiatrists have labeled ADHD and even the lead author of the book when of those DSM-4 uh, Alan Francis has said that these were not intended to be real diagnoses they were intended to be social constructions mm. um, which you know be that as it may he's had a change of heart he's had some repentance about that uh, but they have been sold and packaged as real diagnoses real diseases And what he was saying is that we meant them as social constructions, as this is what children in our age kind of look like a lot of the time. Um, we didn't have it when I was growing up, but we have it now. Um, so it's something about our society, and it's not a disease. Now, I like a statement that uh, Dr. Thomas Armstrong made. He said that it's not due to bad parenting, but no. it's due to fractured lives. That's beautiful. It's true. I mean, parents love their children. All parents have good intentions toward their children. How could they not? But um, they are so, their lives are fractured because of the economic pressure. Uh, again, we, have, we live in a have and have not society, so you don't want to fall into the have nots. You want to, to be able to give your child a safe life and good schools and good education and send them to college. And so both parents are working, yeah, and, yeah. and that fractures family life. That was yeah. our case. That was our situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, family dinners. Uh, we had a family dinner every night, and to, Now, you know, one kid is at soccer practice because that looks good on his CV for college. Right. And one kid is at piano lessons because that's going to help get her into college. And, and one parent has to work late because, you know, they're talking to, your, to Europe, to the office in Europe. Yep. And so there's no um, f coherent, structured family life. Yeah. 
Um, and, and, and that's really sad um, because uh, children need structure. It makes them feel safe. They need to know when the mealtime is. And that, that's the point I make in the article, uh, Why French Kids Don't Have ADHD, yeah. um, is that in France, uh, you have your th three meals, you have the kids don't have snacks between meals. It's a very structured life. It's becoming a little different. Uh, my French colleagues are saying it's getting it's, Americanized. It's getting, now. It's getting globalized. It's kind <laughs> of a globalized culture. Yeah. But uh, traditionally, it was very structured. Everyone knew what, they didn't eat a bag of potato chips before dinner and then say, I don't want to be, be at dinner, I want to watch a TV show. So that is the way our lives have become fractured. Um, the family has become fractured. So again, it's that structure is is really going back to discipline, right? Or a, a, a rhythm, a predictable, safe uh, rhythm, so right. that the family can function. Exactly. Um, it, it's yeah, the discipline is a part of it. The child knows the rules. If they break the rules, they're going to get a consequence. But it's just knowing that they're going to have breakfast in the morning and that mommy will be there. If daddy has to leave early, mommy will be there. Knowing that they're going to have lunch and that they shouldn't eat any junk food, that if they want a snack, they can have sliced apples, sliced pears, and then dinner is together as a family. Um, that kind of predictability makes a child feel safe. Yeah. They like the structure. It makes them feel contained. So that's a big, right, feeling safe, obviously in the case of abuse uh, of any kind, uh, the safety is, is taken away. Right. The, the, and the, what does it get replaced with? when a child doesn't feel safe? Um, it gets replaced with out-of-control behavior, with, like, acting just at random acting-out behavior, just confusion, mm. chaos, inattentiveness, um, yeah. if a child doesn't feel safe. I, I understand that the prefrontal cortex, right, sort of gets hijacked by now having to deal with the, the lack of safety or uncertainty, and it gets replaced with, I mean... They're trying to stuff m math and geometry and whatever into a child's head, but the child is processing a possible divorce or whatnot. Right. How can you possibly do both at the same time? Exactly. That's why trauma, trauma rewires the brain. Trauma uh, affects the brain. Mm. And, and all kinds of trauma. It doesn't have to be abuse, but you know, just um, being slapped or being, being spanked or... Um, watching Bambi, if you're too young, can be a little trauma. Traumatizing. Yeah, it can be. And yeah. um, the kinds of uh, TV exposure. Well, that's, that's another cause I, I didn't actually mention uh, that was on my list. And that is overexposure to electronic screens. That has, there's research that absolutely proves that. That, that makes a child the, distracted. The and, light and uh, the, ener the energy. And the and pace, the pace of it. Yep. Uh, what the one research study found was that uh, one group of children were given Sesame Street and, or something like that on PBS, and another group of children were given fast-paced cartoons. And after 20 minutes of that, they were given a cognitive test, you know, that tested memory, executive function. And the ones that um, watched no TV and the ones that watched PBS shows with a natural pace scored high, the same, about the same. And the ones that, scored the, uh, the ones that watched the fast-paced cartoons scored much lower. Mm. So it's really that fast pace. It, yeah. it, it, the the child the, hasn't evolved to be able to process that. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one is nowadays we're, we're surrounded by, well, thank God, you know, one of the reasons why we moved to Ojai, we don't have billboards here. There's no, you know, the attack on the, uh, the census from entertainment is just not like it used to be in, in L.A. when we lived down there. There's like billboards and everywhere. There's stuff on buses and this right. and that. And, you know, stimulation, overstimulation. So, so reducing that can definitely help. And nature, obviously. So you found that has helped with your children. I, I think so. I mean, it's been a, 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 a multifaceted process. Right. We've really changed a lot of things fast. So right. can't tell which one, you know, yeah. did the most change. But definitely us uh, repairing our, our marriage and being closer together and being available, being home. And we always have our, our family lunches and dinners and, and breakfast. Yeah. I mean, and I shifted my career, my career and my business presence from mm -hmm. being a stressful Good. Uh, activity to now being present with my kids at home in our partnership. I know what worked the most. <laughs> I finally stepped up to be a man. I would say that's, that was the big. How, what, what do you mean by that? Um, I, 
I've sort of been in this prince boy behavior for most of my life because mm-hmm. I didn't have a role model who mm-hmm. was really in the masculine mm-hmm. and who really was there to create certainty and safety mm-hmm. for my wife and my children. Mm-hmm. So finally, through mentor and relationship uh, area, I, I was able to step. I'm still working on it, but I was able to say I can provide for the family. I can make my wife feel safe. She doesn't have to work if she doesn't want to. Of course, she loves working, but it's not that she has to because if... I don't hold up my end of the bargain. She was afraid that, you know, she has to provide, right? And she comes from a background where women did that. Mm-hmm. So we're the perfect match because I had to step into my masculine and she got to step into her feminine. And during my life yeah. of being overly stressed, I was just doing it out of the fear of, I need to provide. I have to be the provider. Right. right. Because in your family, the men were either away at war or they were gone. And so the women had to run everything. Right. 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 And so me stepping up created more safety for her. And I think the children feel that. Yes. Right. I and think that, so. that creates another presence of the father. So but it's required a whole rewiring of the entire system, as you've, as you indicated. Yeah. yeah. And so, so I'm just saying that because I know that, that if men could step up into the masculine and be men instead of boys we would see a change even in, in ADHD. That's that, my claim. That's a wonderful cl- point. That's, that, that's really a wonderful idea. Yeah. Because yeah, so many true. divorces are the husbands run away because, oh, the, my child has ADHD. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm out. Yeah. Right? Or they yeah. were too young when they got married or they were never taught what it means to be a man uh, in the masculine, right? And I'm not talking this sort of 50s dynamic of the housewife and the man is at work. Really, a masculine, uh, a grounded father who, who is there to, to be the rock. Right. Yeah. And that allows and creates safety and certainty. And that's what's missing. Like you said, if the safety has gone in the child's psyche, then they replace it with anxiety and fear, confusion. And and so inattentiveness. So that would be my claim is to 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 what helped you, what helped me and the family in return just for me to step up and everything else, you know, followed. Well, I think that's very brave and courageous of you to to look at yourself in that depth and to come up with that and to, to say it, I, I think that takes courage. It's taken years, you know, thank you. It's definitely taken years and there's more to go, but I, I just always love looking at myself because I know, as you believe, that if we as parents change and transform, our, our kids transform. Right. And then we don't need medication. That's my hope. Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, is there anything else on that list? No, it's an I, think we've, list. I think we've done it. Yeah. Wow. I well, I we've... thank you for breaking it down that way because I'm sure parents, you know, always want to know, like, what are the things? What can I actually do? Yeah. It's that there are multi-causes for behaviors that we call. It's not just a reductionist brain disease that, that the doctor. I mean, there are brain diseases like meningitis, encephalitis, uh, epilepsy. Those are true diseases and they can cause hyperactivity. But not. Uh, but doctors know about those. Then the, you you know if your child has that. But all it, it's reducing all all of these things that I've talked about to to one cause, a defective brain, and one treatment, medication, and that that's what I've been trying to get across. That, that that's just not a helpful way of looking at things. Now let me ask you. Uh, the um, there's occupational there's different therapies right that parents also often go to not family therapy but just sort sure. of uh, we had a therapist at school that would just you know keep poking Kai and say pay attention pay attention pay attention that's literally all he did that's yeah what Kai told us so there's that and then there's the uh, being in special ed right so mm-hmm. what does dad actually do uh, on both ends what does it do does it does it create any progress? And also, what could it do to a child of being labeled and being in special ed classes? And well, I, yeah, I've had, I, I've had both recently. Um, but, well, being in special ed class can be very helpful because it's a small group, and, and usually the teacher is very well-trained and really there for the child. So I think it can be very helpful. Um, and they call it resources, or th- there are other names for it. Um, than special ed, um, but uh, so I think it can be very helpful to a child. Then, on the other hand, if 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 uh, if it's suddenly sprung on a child, well, you're not keeping up with class, so you have to go to special ed. Then the child can feel upset. I had a ten-year-old girl recently who who was very upset because it was just sprung on her. 
uh, now I have to go to the special class. So if, if the child knows that this is what, the, from the beginning of school, that you're going to have these special, special classes to help you catch up, keep you, um, you know, keep you up to speed, mm. that I think it's good for, I think it can, it can do a lot of good. And special ed teachers are just amazing. They, they're just really there for the child and 100% um, trying to help the child. That's great. And then in, say, like occupational therapy or cognitive therapies, is it still kind of just about the child? Because what you do is more inclusive, like right. the whole it, family. Right. It's seeing the child as in this part of the family system. If a child needs occupational therapy, they need occupational therapy um, if they have some kind of neurological problem. Um, but it's mostly the family system. Uh, even tics. I mean, uh, tics mm -hmm. can be cured by family therapy. Um, so the, the, the point is seeing the child not as the patient, but as the expression of something wrong in the system, the canary in the coal mine. Beautiful. I love that. I, I don't think we can end this episode any better with any better statement. Uh, Dr. Wedge, thank you so much for, um, I, I love calling you Marilyn, but I know you have such a wealth of, I, I, I will call you that, but you know, to our listeners, uh, I'm just really, really thankful for all your, your wisdom, your sharing the experiences and for being part of this project and for just, you know, again, uh, making time to, to be with us for, oh. for ADHD is over. It's my pleasure, truly. Thank you, Marilyn. Oh, thank you. Thank you both. Until next time. Okay.